From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Several Georgia communities are involved in one of the largest civil trials in U.S. history. The consolidated case is unfolding in federal court in Cleveland. The defendants are opioid manufacturers and distributors. The plaintiffs, local governments who say they've shelled out money to address the epidemic in their communities. Among them, at least 18 Georgia counties, five cities, and two Georgia hospital authorities. Well, the case had a hearing yesterday, so today we're getting a rundown of what's happening with with UGA law professor Elizabeth Birch on the line from WUGA. Hello there. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Also with us, Washington Post reporter Stephen Rich. He's joining us from D.C. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner who's been analyzing data from the case. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, I'm going to start with Elizabeth. A massive lawsuit here. It's been unfolding for about a year and a half. Can you give us a brief summary of what's happening in the case? Sure. Um, well, you know, there's a lot going on in the federal multi-district litigation. Multi-district litigation is a procedure that we use to coordinate cases that are similar across the country. But there's also a lot that's happening in the various states. Um, just in July, we saw a trial in Oklahoma wrap up. It was a bench trial. Um, we're still waiting for a verdict there. Um, Judge Polster, who is presiding over the federal cases, has largely been focused on settlement. I mean, he came right out of the box talking about settlement in uh, January of 2018, so last year, um, and has continued to pursue that most recently yesterday uh, when he was talking about the negotiation class action. All right, Stephen, court battles often public, but the data that you reviewed from the case were sealed. The Washington Post and Charleston, Ga- Charleston Gazette Mail had to sue for access to learn how many opioid pills went to various cities and counties per person per year. Now, this is between 2006 and 2012. Can you tell us what those numbers revealed? Yeah, so we found that uh, distributors sent more than 76 billion pills across the United States over that seven-year period, including uh, about 2.7 billion pills uh, to Georgia itself. Um, and that uh, basically equates to 36 pills per person per year for every man, woman, and child across the entire United States. Uh, now, we know that not every every person is taking opioids, and so the those numbers are often higher among the actual users of the pills. Um, and so what we're actually able to see is the communities that are the hardest hit. You know, we know that some... Uh, counties are, have more than a hundred pills per person per year, including a couple in Georgia um, itself. Are these counties concentrated in any particular area besides Georgia? So I mean, there you are, mentioned. Yeah, so there is basically like a, a virtual opioid belt that spans from the middle of West Virginia down through Southwest Virginia and into uh, Kentucky. Uh, In some of those counties, it's upwards of 200 pills per person per year, and the counties surrounding it are also uh, just about the same. And so those areas have been particularly hard hit. And Stephen, then you cross-referenced that pill distribution data with the number of opioid deaths and found that places with an inordinate number of pills correspond with disproportionate to the population number of deaths. Now, if you are listening at home, check out gpbnews.org later today. We've got the Washington Post graphics depicting this correlation. So how do those trends play out in Georgia? 
Uh, just about the same. We know that the county is where there are high concentrations of these pills. Um, there were high concentrations of these deaths relative to the population. Um, some of those areas include sort of the northwest portion, the counties that are right along the border, um, and uh, and then in the, the far south of Georgia, uh, those, those counties had high pills and high deaths. So th it, it's a little more complicated than like the pills cause the deaths, but it is an obviously a major contributing factor to um, to these deaths because you know the the more pills you have, the more likely it is that people are going to overdose on them. Yeah, Elizabeth, this case has about two thousand local governments on the plaintiff side. Really complicated, and there is a proposal that it should be called some uh, a, a class negotiation. <laughs> I, I, what is that, and how would it work here? Well, you know, it's all sort of new to me as well. Uh, it's it's essentially a mutant. Um, it's a class action. Um, but instead of a class action that's actually being certified for the purposes of trial or for the purpose of actually um, deciding whether to settle a case, this is a class action where all of the cities and counties are banding together beforehand um, and agreeing to a formula that would essentially allocate any ultimate settlement war award among them. Um, and the formula is um, broken down into seven different categories, and or maybe it's six different categories, but um, each of the categories requires an affirmative vote of 75% um, of whomever might ultimately vote on that to decide whether uh, to accept a settlement offer. So who would be included or excluded from a negotiation class, for example? Well, I mean, that's kind of the crazy thing. You know, you normally think about the lawsuit as only including the parties who have actually chosen to sue. And as you mentioned earlier, in Georgia, it's about 18 counties so far. Um, of course, we've got a separate lawsuit by Attorney General Chris Carr, which is proceeding in uh, state court here in Georgia. Um, but the negotiation class would include everybody. So whether you have sued or whether you haven't sued, um, all of the counties and cities in the entire United States, unless they affirmatively opt out uh, and decide not to participate in this negotiation class, then they're going to be bound um, by the settlement that's ultimately decided and ultimately kind of a, an affirmative vote. So I'll note here that this has not been certified yet. The hearing yesterday was uh, a hearing to decide uh, whether to certify the negotiation class action. Um, and so that's that's what's been going on most currently. So that's the broad sweep. But of the nearly dozen Georgia counties, several cities involved, uh, what are their arguments for recouping financial damages? Well, they're all a little bit different. Um, and, you know, the arguments differ even across, um, you know, the United States. Our Attorney General Chris Carr has focused principally on uh, the opioid manufacturers and distributors. Um, they have named a number of pharmaceutical companies uh, currently just named as John Doe's right now. Um, but we have, you know, slightly different theories of liability asserted uh, in Georgia than, say, you know, in Oklahoma or a different state. Um, there have been lawsuits here that are filed uh, based on our RICO statutes. RICO is a racketeering statute. It was designed to deal with the mob many years ago. Um, but we also have, you know, norm more normal claims, one might say, over public nuisance and negligence and civil conspiracy. Um, so there are a lot of different types of claims that the state is asserting. That's UGA law professor Elizabeth Birch, also with me, Washington Post reporter Stephen Rich. And we're talking about a consolidated 
opioid lawsuit unfolding in federal court. 23 Georgia counties and cities are plaintiffs in the case. Now, Stephen, drug companies are blaming medical professionals who promiscuously prescribed opiates. Plaintiffs argue that manufacturers and distributors saw red flags and ignored them to make more money. You got an inside look at what was happening from these court documents, including a deposition from one Victor Borelli. He's an account manager for Malinrot. This is a pharmaceuticals company. What was revealed there? So we know that uh, many of these companies, the their only goal of some of these people was to sell as many of these pills as possible and to get as many of these pills into the hands of people as they could. And so Victor uh, had sent uh, emails indicating essentially uh, – that he he would just he would sell anybody anything um and one infamous email he refers to the pills as doritos as in mm. you keep eating we'll keep sending them to you mm. um and and so there was sort of this culture at least that's the argument that uh the plaintiffs are making that that in these drug companies, the the culture was to just sell, sell, sell um, without thinking about what the potential repercussions of this would be. Yeah, I'm reading from Ron. Keep them coming, uh, flying out of here. It's like people are addicted to these things or something. Oh, wait, people are. Just extreme insensitivity. The drug company, for its part, says they fired him a long time ago, and this is no indication. But Borelli's deposition uncovered another person's name, Aunt or Aunt Sandra. I'm saying name instead of person for a reason. What's the story with Aunt Sandra? So Aunt Sandra was basically a person listed in, a, in an email as somebody who needed uh, 1,500 pills a month um, in, in case uh, – the, so the math on that is basically 50 opioid pills a day and these are, these are oxy-15s. So they're pretty powerful. Um, that would be enough to kill most people, probably everybody. Um, and so basically they the, – the talk was about approving this this shipment of, of this – what is clearly a suspicious shipment to a pharmacy that they had never dealt with. And one of the things that we found actually outside of the deposition was that this shipment was made um, and it was the only shipment that this company had ever sent to this pharmacy and it was for it was for above the amount of the pills that would be necessary for whoever Aunt Sandra might be. Elizabeth, as you mentioned, proving negligence or duty to act gets pretty tricky, especially here in Georgia. But can you talk us through both sides of the legal arguments here? What do the drug companies say in response to these allegations? Well, the drug companies largely point to other actors. Um, so, for example, you know, instead of the manufacturers being held responsible, they say, look, you know, we make the drug, then we distribute the drug. The drug then goes to pharmacies. But before you can get it as an end user, your doctor has to prescribe it. These are pills that are FDA approved. This isn't something like tobacco because there are genuine needs and there are general, genuine medical purposes uh, for having drugs like this. Well, how will the plaintiffs then try to prove that the drug companies themselves are responsible? Well, I mean, as Stephen has um, has shown, you know, there, there are all these different documents that, um, in fact, show that drug companies knew exactly what was going on and were, in fact, promoting it. Um, there are questions about the ways that they marketed the drugs. Um, you know, as soon as they found out that there might have been a doctor who was more willing to prescribe than someone else, then that doctor was uh, repeatedly visited by pharmaceutical company representatives. Um, and so, you know, they continued to 
push these types of drugs, even in instances where there were already red flags. Whether or not the drug companies broke laws is up to the court. But Stephen, your reporting reveals what could be a failure by some companies to follow DEA compliance regulations. What happened there? And how much weight is that going to have on the case? So uh, these companies are required to submit uh, suspicious order reports to uh, to the DEA, uh, and that's basically things that are outside of the norm, like orders that are that are abnormally large for a specific pharmacy. And so, what we know is, in in many cases, there were approvals of these suspicious orders very quickly. One, uh, one Purdue Pharma exec uh, got an email with a suspicious order at 4:15 one afternoon and approved it at 4:16. Um, and what we also know is that some of these companies were trying to get around this by not calling orders suspicious, but by calling them like peculiar orders um, as, as a way of getting around sort of reporting these things to uh, to the DEA. And we know that some of these companies had like thousands of suspicious orders and the number of uh, – times that they reported it to the DEA and stopped these orders was was very, very small, enough to, you know, count on one hand or two. Elizabeth, we're heading into a break, but I want to ask you, and we can certainly pick this up, this settlement is expected to surpass the nearly $250 billion settlement with tobacco companies back in 1998. So 20 years later, we've seen that a lot of that money from tobacco settlements didn't necessarily end up going towards tobacco prevention or education programs. Uh, is that motivating cities and counties to take companies to court themselves? Absolutely. You know, the cities and the counties were actually the first drivers of these lawsuits, and they're the ones that are in the um, federal multidistrict proceeding. Um, and there's a lot of tension that's playing out between the cities and counties and the state attorney generals, uh, particularly with the state suing in their own courts. All right, we're going to hold this for just a moment. We're talking about a massive opioid lawsuit. Several Georgia counties involved. Elizabeth Birch is with us from UGA Law. Washington Post reporter Stephen Rich, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We'll continue the conversation right after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB and Virginia Prescott. We're talking today about one of the largest civil trials in U.S. history. It's going after makers and distributors of opioids. About 2,000 cities and counties across the state, or across the country, rather, are involved. And that includes about two dozen in Georgia. UGA law professor Elizabeth Birch is on the line with us from Athens. Washington Post reporter Stephen Rich from D.C. And Stephen, you have covered the opioid epidemic extensively. How has it changed life, feeling, conversations, relationships in the counties and cities part of the lawsuit? I mean, we know that it's topic A in most of these places, you know, where where many people uh, in like the Beltway are paying attention to the president. Uh, many people in these communities are mostly just talking about these these opioids. And I mean, at this point, it's not just these prescription pills anymore. In in many of these counties, uh, they've moved on to a heroin crisis and subsequently a fentanyl crisis, which is killing more than the prescription drug crisis ever did. And so it's front of mind for many of the people living here because, you know, it's not – everybody knows somebody. Everybody knows a person who has either overdosed from um, – from one of these opioids or 
or they know somebody who knows somebody. And so uh, it's really is sort of the the topic of conversation. And, and it's it's frustrating for a lot of people. Many people in these communities have been suffering for this for, for 20 years. And, and many of them knew what was coming and nobody did anything to stop it. And so that has been a major frustration for many of these people. Well, that's where a lot of addicts have turned after they couldn't get opioids as easily into street drugs, heroin or fentanyl. But can you make the argument that because of their aggressive marketing, people got hooked on these opioids? And, you know, can you connect them to those non-prescription drug deaths? I mean, we know that people got hooked on the opioids. We know that the, the marketing was was not at the beginning stages that these things were addictive. And now whether or not um, the marketing contributed to that is going to be a major factor in this case, whether the plaintiffs can prove that. Um, but we know that people on prescription drugs moved on to heroin and on to fentanyl. We just we it, it is the third wave of the of the opioid crisis, and we know that one followed the next, followed the next, because many of these people were people who had overdosed and lived on prescription pills only to die on heroin or fentanyl. Elizabeth, I'm going to turn to that Georgia case you mentioned. This huge lawsuit from municipalities across the states is one thing, but many states are suing opioid companies separately, and Georgia among them. So why would Georgia or any other state choose to go ahead and sue on its own? I mean, I think the main idea is that you want to get your home court advantage. You want to try these cases in front of local judges and local juries. You want to give a chance uh, for local citizens to actually weigh in, you know, to give them a voice about what's happening in the community. Um, And they're not able to do that if the trials are all being held in Cleveland, Ohio. So how far along is the Georgia lawsuit compared to Cleveland? The Georgia lawsuit is really in its infancy. Um, It's been filed. There have been motions to dismiss that have been filed. Those motions to dismiss have not been decided yet. In fact, um, there is, I believe, a motion pending now to move this to Georgia's new business court. Uh, So it's not yet clear who's going to be the ultimate decider of these Georgia lawsuits. We've been talking about civil action against drug companies. In the case of street drug sales, we're talking about crime. So can you explain why or how the legal approach would be different for a Purdue farmer, for example, versus someone selling fentanyl in the streets in Atlanta? Well, you know, I'll just note that there have been a number of um, both civil and criminal actions filed in these cases. Um, you know, if you've been following the news, you, you know what's going on with NCs. Um, NCs was a, was a company that made a fentanyl-based painkiller. Um, their uh, chief eject- executive, John Kapoor, was found guilty on racketeering charges this past May. Um, they paid $225 million to settle federal, civil, and criminal charges in June, and then they ultimately filed bankruptcy later in June. Um, so it's not as if one is happening in isolation uh, to the other. In fact, these are very much parallel tracks. Stephen, your paper had to sue to get data and court documents that allowed you to literally map this opioid belt, as you called it, and see behind the doors of drug makers. That is getting harder and harder to do as newspapers shrink. You know, the budgets are not there anymore. So if you had all the resources you needed to get all the information you needed, what do you think would be the next chapter of this opioid epidemic story? 
I mean, we want to see what happened after 2012. Uh, you know, the in in court, the data that they have is through 2014. So we are still suing uh, to make the next the the 2013 and 2014 data public. Um, we would also like the data up through last year. We'd like to be able to see sort of how this ha happened after you know the DEA stepped in and and did that. But honestly, you know, I want to see everything. I'm I'm a huge transparency advocate and and I think you know we have a right to know what exactly happened here so I you know we really want there are a lot more documents in this case that have we have yet to see because they are still under seal um, the the drug companies are, have just uh, have just appealed the ruling to make many of them public again. And so we're still waiting on that. But ultimately, um, we have only sort of our reporting has only sort of scratched the surface of what we know about what the drug companies knew and when they knew it during the height of the opioid crisis. Stephen Rich, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Stephen Rich from The Washington Post, UGA law professor Elizabeth Birch. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now we've been talking about a massive lawsuit related to the opioid crisis. A quick note of disclosure, one of the producers who worked on this segment has an out-of-state family member who works at CVS headquarters that is one of the defendants in this case.